sermon text this morning is Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 31. Listen carefully, this is the word of God. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And so, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild the temple uh, tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but then we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men and their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter to them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles of Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their very lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep your things from if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask 
in the name of your son Jesus to pour out your spirit on us for the purpose of greater understanding and the wondrous things of your law. We ask that you would remove distractions from our hearts and minds and also that you would deliver me from error in your mercy. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, one thing's for sure is uh, I have a new baby at home, and he is an absolute blessing, a treasure, a gift from God, but there's absolutely no doubt that he has brought a lot of conflict to my household. I don't know if you guys know what I mean. Essentially, he's a gift from God, but he's caused us to come face to face with our sin. He's caused us to come face to face with our love of sleep and that we need to sacrifice that so that we can be more like Jesus. I believe this is good conflict that helps us grow. And I think that the Holy Spirit actually brought this conflict that we see in Acts chapter 15 to do the same thing to the very young church. So let's begin in verse 1. So verse 1 clearly states that the men of Judea were teaching the brethren of the Gentile church of Antioch that they must be circumcised like all Jews in order to be saved. So the obvious implication is that if they're not circumcised, they cannot be saved. They're not saved unless they're circumcised. They're condemned. And some of you may be hearing that statement of that teaching of these men and say, yes, that is what the Old Testament teaches. In order to be saved... You have to be circumcised and keep the law. That's the whole point of the Old Testament, right? Salvation by works. I believe this is a misunderstanding. In order to avoid that misunderstanding, we have to actually go to the Word, go ahead and seek out the answer to that question. Does the Old Testament teach that circumcision and the keeping of the Mosaic law merit salvation for the Jews when it was given, And does it merit salvation for the Gentiles? Many of us, including myself in the past, have been instructed that um, the Old Testament as uh, being about Israel seeking salvation through keeping a large list of obligations given by God. And upon keeping them perfectly, they will merit righteousness before God. We're often taught that the New Testament... It's all about grace. It's all about being saved by faith in Jesus, apart from faithfulness to any law, and that salvation by grace is a New Testament thing. And nothing could be further from the truth. Grace is not new. Grace was in the garden. Grace is as ancient as the ancient of days. And so let's take a look at verses Um, 5 through 12, we have the Pharisee believers in verse 5 seeming to be in, in agreement with the men from Judea in a limited sense. However, Peter responds to them after much debate, after much conflict, by confirming his being chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And if you remember, in chapter 10, his ministry had the effect of igniting a Gentile Pentecost. A Gentile Pentecost in the household of Cornelius, a Gentile commander. 
And so here, he's drawing attention to this because this is a case where the Holy Spirit is being the Spirit of Christ. And just like Christ did not demand the unclean stand at arm's length from them, but Jesus healed them and cleansed them, just so the Holy Spirit also cleansed the hearts of these Gentiles, making them pure by faith. The Holy Spirit made no distinction between the clean Jew and the unclean Gentile here. So Peter makes it clear in verse 10 that opposing the work of the Spirit in these Gentiles is opposition to God and puts God to the test. Here Peter calls the requirement of circumcision and Mosaic law-keeping as the Pharisee believers understand it to be an unbearable yoke that not even the best of them could bear not even their fathers. But, says Peter, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter is saying that salvation has worked the same way from the very beginning for Jew and Gentile. This is how salvation has always worked. All who are saved are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ before and after his crucifixion and resurrection. Peter also preached in Acts 10 saying, In truth I perceive that God makes, uh, shows no partiality, but in every nation, every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So Peter says the idea that righteousness can be merited before God by being circumcised and keeping the law is unknown to the Old Testament law and is even further dismissed by the work of the Spirit in Gentile hearts, witnessed by Paul and Barnabas. Peter is making it clear that the Pharisee believers are misunderstanding the law. They're not super accurate law teachers. They're actually missing it. They're misunderstanding the law as an instrument utilized to merit righteous standing before God and are therefore misusing the law as a standard of entrance into the kingdom of God and are gatekeeping. If we understand, if we misunderstand anything, inevitably we will misuse and misapply that truth or that concept. And we will end up harming our neighbors, even more so with eternal things taught by God. So, allow me to give an example of just how from the beginning there was grace. Adam was placed in the garden, created already in a state of splendid grace and communion with God always and given freely everything he needed for fruitfulness before he did anything good or bad. And even when they broke that garden covenant, the Lord made provision for the forgiveness of their sins by the atoning sacrifice of animals. They were still given righteous seed who feared the Lord and were still given the promise of a redeemer and still given the task under God to trustingly obey, being fruitful and filling the earth. And the same flow of history repeats for Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And of course, there are very sharp punishments for breaking the law in any context. But to conclude, therefore, 
that since there are punishments for unrighteousness in the law, the law is flawed or unloving, that does not follow. This God we serve loves us first, condescends to us first, covenants with us first, and then we respond in love for him and for his commandments. And God has never given law as a way to merit entrance into his house. He's always just given law as the rules of his house to the people that he's welcomed in already. He always gives law as the wise path of peace and blessing for his sons and daughters who have been united to him. So going forward, remember that the Pharisee understanding that the law is utilized to merit righteous standing before God is a misunderstanding. It's not an accurate understanding of the law. So after Peter says these things, the whole assembly falls silent, and they listen to Paul and Barnabas tell of their ministry to the Gentiles. Now the Holy Spirit worked many mighty signs and miracles through them. And then after they were done, James, the half-brother of the Lord, spoke, um, half-brother of the Lord Jesus, who was now a uh, prominent leader in the church, begins to explain what the Holy Spirit spoke before through the mouth of the prophets. I'm going to read it real quick. Starting in verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and rebuild its ruins, and I'll set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things." So, James says, the words of the prophets agree. James is quoting from a translation of the prophet Amos, but he's making it very clear that this is not the only prophet that has addressed this topic of the Gentiles coming in. So Peter says, before, that the word of God is always taught that we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, and that James here is saying, the word of God has always taught that God would bring the Gentiles, the nations, into the same intimate fellowship as he did the Jews before. Paul in Ephesians 2 explains this in detail, how the Lord would do away with the Jew and Gentile divide, uniting them together into one man who through Christ has access in one spirit to the Father. But we must ask, why does he use this obscure prophecy from the minor prophet Amos? So notice that the main event in Amos' prophecy in this chapter is the destruction of the temple. The prophet tells Israel that this destruction will destroy the temple and along with it a portion of wicked Israelites. However, after this, God says that he will rebuild the tent, temple of David, and rebuild its ruins and restore it. He, uh, and we're reminded of Jesus' words that he spoke in the presence of Peter and James, where he said that he would destroy the temple in a matter of, of you know, 
and then in a matter of three days, raise it up again. The text then clearly says that Jesus was referring to his body. So when Jesus rose from the dead, being David's son, David's Lord, the promised Davidic king, he is come, he is the resurrected and restored temple. The restored temple tent of David which has been restored so that the Gentiles and all the rest of the nations can be built into his temple body as living stones in the tabernacle of Christ, built around the cornerstone, which is Christ, an eternal high priest touched with the afflictions, with our afflictions, which is Christ. It also bears mentioning that in the year AD 70, the temple was completely leveled. Not one stone was left on another, just as Jesus said was going to happen, meaning that they could not go there, whether they were ceremonially clean or not, to continue to offer worship there. So let's remember that going forward. So after James demonstrates that the prophets agree with this, he makes a judgment as an apostle. He says, don't trouble these Gentiles who are turning to God. Let them know through a letter not to eat, foods polluted by idols, stop with the sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, because strangled animals still have blood in them, and from blood in general. Okay. He ends by saying that in every city, for generations, we've had the books of Moses read on every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what is with the Leviticus all of a sudden? We just heard him say that the law is a burden and a bother to the Gentiles. And he says, go ahead and have them keep Leviticus. Go ahead and have them study and keep Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. We have to remember that the false teaching of the Judaizers was that they misused the law, just like I said before, as a way to merit righteousness before God. Circumcision was never given to the Gentiles, and the law in general was never a way of meriting salvation. Okay. So we see that the Gentiles are being protected from this misunderstanding of the law, but not the law as God intended to give it. These commands are for foreigners living among the tribe of Israel, and they're given in Leviticus chapters 17 and 18. And I believe these commands were given to the Gentiles, Christians, for two two reasons. The first one, to maintain unity between the Christian Jews who still participated in the temple service that required ceremonial cleanliness. Okay, and then two, so that the Gentiles would be disciplined, discipled in the biblical understanding of blood and the biblical understanding of sexuality, which would result in a biblical understanding of worship. So allow me to clarify the first reason. While the Jerusalem Council is going on, the temple of Jerusalem is there, and faithful Christian Jewish folks including the Apostle Paul and James, were still actually participating in temple service, which required the ceremonial uh, ceremonial cleanliness of the worshiper. So, fellowship with Gentiles who may be ceremonially unclean because of their diet or what have you 
was a concern for the Jewish brothers since it compromised their ability to engage in that temple worship. So the council is asking the Gentiles, please be sensitive to the fragile conscience of your Jewish brethren, and please do not bring pig's blood punch to the church potluck, okay? Right, and as to the other commands, you Gentiles, eat no food in the festival or ritual meals worshiping pagan gods, and have nothing to do with pagan temple prostitutes or any sexual immorality at all, for that matter. Instead, fellowship with Christ in his body, humbly preferring your brother over yourself, and learn these ways of purity and worship with the one true worship the one true God from God's word in the Old Testament. So allow me to clarify the second reason. Which was to begin to disciple the Gentiles coming out of incredible darkness into the light of Christian biblical understanding of both blood and sexuality, which, by the way, were central to pagan worship, the pagan worship that they were saved out of. I believe that if all we had was the Bible in order to understand what blood was and what blood meant, we would not be so indifferent to blood as we are. And so from the beginning... God's dealings with his people, um, from the beginning of God's dealings with his people, he taught them that the life is in the blood. And from the beginning, we see in Leviticus chapter 17, where these commands come from, even the blood of an animal is revered. God commands that any animal who's had its blood spilled, its blood must be covered with dirt, and anyone who touches it is unclean until evening. Many surrounding pagan cultures to this day, in the day of Leviticus, in the day of the early church, and even to this day, will drink fresh animal blood to commune with the gods and prophesy whether or not the harvest will be good this year. They see it, uh, the consumption of blood, that is, is participating in the life of the animal whose blood has been shed. And the New Testament has an even deeper requirement where Jesus says in John 6, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I... Um, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. In other words, Jesus says a lot about blood. And the Gentiles must be instructed to understand blood in a different way than they understood in their pagan context, in their pagan worship, because you must understand the Bible's teaching about blood in general in order to understand the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Also, the Gentiles must look to the biblical understanding of marriage as the holy and fitting context for sexuality. The Lord's Supper unites us intimately to Christ, and Christian marriage unites us so that the two become one. 
And Moses, in Leviticus chapter 18, lays out who it is we're permitted to marry and become one flesh with. And ultimately, these rules from God's law were the apostles and Moses' program for instructing former pagan worshipers in the faithful worship of King Jesus. Jesus being the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of the world and the host of a banquet where he gives his body and his blood for us as a participation in his life. And once they're trained in the liturgy and worship, um, Christian worship, and their pagan upbringing is exchanged for the biblical worldview, they'll have freedom in worship. And so they get together, they write this in a letter, and all this, the apostles say, it seems good to them and to the Holy Spirit to lay no other burden or yoke upon them. And when it was delivered, the Gentiles, it says, rejoiced. In conclusion, Jesus many times in the presence of the Pharisees and scribes would be confronted and told that he was breaking the law in some way or he would be given some test or trick question concerning the law so that they could prove before the people that he was not a prophet like Moses who has come to be their Messiah and deliverer. In those days, in those situations, Jesus would simply point out that they were hypocrites and were ignorant of the law and were nullifying it by their traditions. Not only that, but burdening the people with obligations and using God's law as a, as a means to crush and oppress. And the Lord would answer them and use the law as it was intended to bind up the broken and liberate the captives. Indeed, he was even driven into the wilderness by the Spirit and went to war with the devil's lies and testings using the law of God. He went to war with the abuses and misunderstandings of the Pharisees by revealing the true nature of the law, calling the weary and heavy laden under the tutelage of the rabbis to take his yoke upon. So I must look to the Jerusalem Council's example because no one is on record at the Jerusalem Council saying something like this. I sure wish Jesus was here. He would clear this mess right up. He would fix everything by saying some parable or something. And it would just blow our minds and we would just, it would all be awesome. We could go home. That is not the attitude of the apostles and it's not the attitude of the disciples here. They seem to be convinced that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them. They seem to be convinced that the Holy Ghost has anointed them to handle this situation, that the Holy Spirit has, is able to give them boldness and wisdom to resolve this conflict. And they're shown to believe that it was better for Jesus to ascend to his Father so they can inherit the Spirit. Just so, just before this service, we're, we were given a gift of the Holy Spirit an elder. We've been given many gifts of the Holy Spirit. A pastor, elders, deacons. These are governors, officers in our church. They're gifts from the Holy Spirit, and they are themselves gifted by the Holy Spirit to instruct and govern this body, having inherited Christ's ministry of the right use of the law. The Holy Spirit is giving boldness in this internal conflict. And so it proves that the Holy Spirit is not just giving evangelism boldness. 
He is also giving presbytery meeting boldness, family reunion boldness, boardroom boldness, kitchen table boldness, and any boldness we need to confront the enemies of the body of Christ that threaten the unity that we have in one spirit in any of all of the circumstances the Lord has placed us in his wisdom. So the council's decision was based on what the Holy Spirit had said in the word of God previously. The word-filled church, the word-filled council, the word-filled home is a spirit-filled church, council, or home. And the Old Testament is the word of God still to this day. If we have inherited this law and been given the spirit, we know now that the law is an instrument of liberation and we cannot ignore it. We can't say you don't need the Old Testament because Jesus, you can't say that anymore because Jesus was all about it. We must familiarize ourselves with the law. And a good place I'm reminded to start with that would probably be when Pastor Dwayne went over the Ten Commandments, how much of a blessing it was to us. So we must be instructed in how God says things work and be purged of our own unbelieving and ultimately pagan conceptions of life. In God's law, we receive this instruction. It's not enough to simply take wine away from an alcohol abuser. He must be instructed from God's law concerning the nature and use of wine in God's world so that he can be restored to using wine at the Lord's table and worship Christ faithfully with the elements he set apart. We must take to the word so that we can disinherit the ways of darkness and walk in light as he is in the light. We have so many afflictions and conflicts, inward and outward, because we lack the Lord's instruction in the area that we most need it. And I believe that here in America, in general, we need instruction concerning worship, the right way to approach God, much like the Gentiles in our text. So lastly, one of the objections that the Roman Catholic Church had against the Reformation was that the Reformation had so many different views on so many different things like the supper and baptism and government. They would say, how could you say you're a Reformation fueled by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is a spirit of order and a spirit of unity? Obviously, the Roman Catholic Church is a church filled with unity. I roll. Certainly not. The Second Helvetic Confession responds to this differently. It says, don't you guys remember what happened in Acts chapter 15? Don't you guys remember that the Holy Spirit was responsible for the conflict of the Jerusalem Council? Don't you remember going about and working miracles through Paul and Barnabas, just being bombastic, going about filling Gentiles with the Spirit without any warning or preliminary counsel, even unstoppable, even in conflict, is the Holy Spirit. Conflict may even be a sure sign of his presence if the conflict is caused by truth confronting lies. So I have really good news for you and for me. The Holy Spirit is not afraid of you and your conflict-filled life. He is a manly, enlivening spirit and can handle your strife-filled house, disagreements between brothers and spouses, church financial meetings, marriage counseling, or any conflict troubling your soul. 
The Holy Spirit stirred this conflict in the church in Acts and attended the conflict throughout, with the result of the church having greater clarity of doctrine, zeal for evangelism, more table fellowship with the nations. Just so this conflict, this conflict that you're going through, can do nothing for you, Christian, but make you more like your beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. This affliction you bear might be a hard tutor, but all things work together for the salvation and eternal good of those who love the Lord Jesus. For he knows your frame, and he sent you and I a helper. Let's pray. O Holy Father, everlasting God, thank you for sending Jesus, and thank you for the Holy Spirit. Apply these things to our hearts, and throughout the week, uh, as needed, bring them to our remembrance so that we may trust what seems good to your Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.